Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 111, verse 10. Last week we covered the first, really the first nine verses, and uh, we saved this last one for just really one little phrase, fear of the Lord. And what does that mean? And how does scripture um, help us understand what the fear of the Lord is, and what does that mean in my life today? Should I walk around kind of uh, waiting for the hammer to fall on me because I fear the Lord? Uh, Should I walk around in some other aspect? To some degree, it depends on how you understand that phrase and how you perhaps were were taught. Maybe you were taught to always be afraid of the Lord, that he is a guy ready to thump you or to squelch your fun or whatever that may be. Or perhaps your understanding of the fear of the Lord is different, more of an awe. And you stand in awe of the Lord. Um, we'll see what, what the word says. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us with your Holy Spirit today. Open our eyes to this, that we might understand this, that we might live in this, since it is a command from you. But Lord, that we might understand what this command means. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And simply from verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments, his praise endures forever. So the psalm closes on a quote that we find in many other places in Scripture, most famous being out of Proverbs, and there are plenty of illustrations of that from Proverbs. And really it is the, as we began to talk about last week, it's the heartbeat of piety. It's the heartbeat of what our lives are to be and how they are to be lived before the Lord. Now the Puritan scholar, Henry Scogel, puts it this way, he, he, he relates it very, very well. Piety is the life of God in the soul of man. The life of God in the soul of man. Piety is true godliness. It is true religion. And there can never be true piety or true godliness with any of us unless there is a fear of the Lord. It is the first principle. It is the chief principle. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not, that word beginning not only means start, but it also means chief, as, or as in the first place. So the fear of the Lord is the first place that we have to start. It is the chief place that we have to start. Fear of the Lord starts our wisdom and our understanding of life. And it is to be continued throughout our entire life. Remember Micah 6 says, And what does the Lord require of you? Not just to fear the Lord, but to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before him. These, this is what we are called to do. Now, that does not mean that non-believers have no wisdom. Now, we all know non-believers who are pretty wise and pretty smart. Now, George Bowen was a a missionary to to India, and he writes about this wisdom this way. Can it be said that the non-religious world is without wisdom? Has it no Aristotle, no Socrates, no Tacitus or Goethe or Gibbon? To be honest, I don't know who Goethe and Gibbon are, uh, but obviously Bowen thought they were very smart, okay? So let us understand what wisdom is. It is not any mere amount of knowledge that constitutes wisdom. Appropriate knowledge is essential to wisdom. Appropriate knowledge is essential to wisdom. 
A man who has not the knowledge appropriate to his position, who does not know himself in his relation to God and to his fellow man, who is misinformed as to his duties, his dangers, his necessities, though he may have written innumerable works of a most exalted character, yet he is to be set down as a man without wisdom. What is it to you that your servant is acquainted with mathematics if he is ignorant of your will and what to do for you? The genius of a Voltaire, a Spinoza, a Byron only makes their folly more striking, as though a man floating rapidly onward to the falls of Niagara should occupy himself in a drawing of a very admirable picture of the scenery. Okay, you get that image? Here I am floating down the Niagara River about to go over the falls, and I'm painting a picture of this great scenery as it goes by with death looming in front of me. He says, How can your, what good is it if your servant knows all about mathematics, but remember he is your what? Your servant, and he knows nothing of your will or what you want him to do. That is appropriate wisdom. So let's look first at what the fear of the Lord is, and then we can chew a little bit on what it means in our lives. So there are really two types of fear of the Lord as we understand them from Scripture. And the first type is a dread or terror of the Lord, a dread or terror of the Lord. Um, nothing perhaps is clearer than, than what, what Scripture says, be not afraid of him who killed the body, who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather be afraid of him who is able to destroy what? Both body and soul, Matthew chapter 10. So Jesus is really pleading with us the necessity of the kind of fear that arises from consideration of the judgments of the Lord, and obviously the final judgment of the Lord as well. Uh, Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. So we get an idea of some more of this, and and the type of fear uh, that, that the, the first type of fear that we are dealing with, the fear, the dread or terror of the Lord. The writer of Hebrews urges the fear, um, the fear of really coming up short in our lives before the Lord. And he uses that as an incentive to be diligent and to persevere and really to uh, hang in there, to do what's right, even when we know it's, it, it's not the easy thing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. It says, therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Okay, now, uh, there's a strange, uh, uh, we'll get to that in, in a moment and flesh that out, uh, what that means exactly as, as he's talking about. Dan also read the passage of um, Paul in Corinthians about running the race. Okay, and, and how do you run the race? You run the race like the guy going down the Niagara River looking at the scenery? No, you run the race with your eyes on the prize. Why? Because you want to finish. And if you watch the sprinters run in particular, where do they run to? The tape? Uh, they run through the tape. Okay, they don't slow up until they have crossed the finish line. And that is Paul saying, this is how you are to live the Christian life, with your eye on the prize, the goal, lest you fall short. He, he uses other images. I beat my body like a boxer so that I might not be found, you know, unfit for the things of heaven. Now, we understand it is Christ's death 
and his resurrection and his atoning blood that gets us to heaven. But he calls us to this life, and this life is different than the world around us. And it is a life of striving until the end of his seeking his perfect will and his service. Hebrews says, let us fear lest while I promise remains of entering his rest, anyone should seem to have come short of it. How awful would it be to get, how do I say this, to get before the Lord. Here we are at the pearly gates and we stand before Christ. And he says, come in, good and faithful servant. And then we find out, yes, we have been saved, but then we get to look at our lives in all the areas where we fell short, perhaps. All the areas where the Lord said, I want you to do this, and we just, we just we couldn't cut it there, and we didn't do it. And, and, and there's a disappointment there. But there are also the joys. You know, we get to lay things before the feet of Christ, of, of gold and silver and precious stones. And those things make it through, in a sense, the fires of judgment. The things that don't make it through are the works that we did for our own glory and not his. So we must understand how this kind of fear is a necessity. A necessity in the heart and the life of the people of God. Psalm 119, my flesh trembles for fear of thee. I am afraid of your judgments. If you fear God, then you don't have to be afraid of anything else, right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? If my fear is placed in the right person, what, what can man do to me? Okay. Remember, I'm fearing, I'm afraid of the person, of the God who can kill both body and soul, not of the one who can just kill this body. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I will not be afraid of ten thousands of the people that have set themselves against me or around me about. Psalm verse 3. Yet there is a trembling and fear in the presence of God and his judgments. A person, Calvin said, a person who fears the Lord so reverences and adores and loves God that he would tremble to sin even if there was no hell. We should hate sin. We should tremble at the thought of sin just because of our fear of a holy God. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 20. This is one of those places that shows us what the fear of the Lord does in people's lives. Remember, this is the dread and terror fear of the Lord. And this is an instance where uh, somebody who should have known better um, doesn't act better. And obviously this is Abraham. Abraham had some weaknesses. Um, And one of those was that uh, when it came to his own life, uh, he was kind of a weenie about it. I guess that's a paraphrase of his life here. Chapter 20, verse 10. Now remember, this is Abraham, and he comes into this, this new land, and he's kind of afraid, and what does he say to Sarah? Tell him, you're my sister, because you're so beautiful, they would kill me to get to you. So he's ready to kind of pawn off his wife in a deception in order that he might survive. So verse 10, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. So what Abraham is saying is that these people do not fear God in dread and terror. So they will not act in an ethical way. 
So where there is a lack of the fear of God, there is a lack of ethical integrity and ethical behavior. An absence of fear of God produces an ethic other than integrity. Okay? Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear God. I am the Lord, Leviticus 19. Okay, there's no ultimate authority in the lives of the people who do not have a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverse mouth. I hate Proverbs chapter 8. And the psalmist and the apostle put this question, put it really beyond question here, when he says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans chapter 3, Psalm chapter 36. The relation of the fear of God to the keeping of the commandments is seen clear in Ecclesiastics, where it says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It doesn't say keep his commandments. This is the duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. They go together here. So the first type of fear here is the fear of the Lord in dread and terror because of his judgments. Because of his judgments. Now, you, 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 maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking uh, three steps ahead and you say, well, Rand, isn't the salvation of the believer secure in Christ and so I'm not actually ever going to face these judgments? And yes, that is true. But you know that because your eyes have been opened to the things of grace and you understand judgment. The pagan does not have his eyes open. The pagan does not believe in God and does not believe in the coming judgments of the Lord. So the the non-believer doesn't believe in it, has no fear of the things of judgment. Uh, That is until they stand before the Lord in judgment and then they realize it is too late. So it's kind of a strange uh, dichotomy here that the ones who don't face judgment are really the ones who are afraid of the judgments of the Lord because it is wise to be afraid of the judgments of the Lord. So the second type, the fear of God, which is the soul of godliness. The fear of God, which is the soul of godliness. It doesn't consist in dread and terror about God's wrath or his judgment. Because we, we have to remember, fear of God's judgment will never produce holiness. Fear of God's judgment will never in themselves produce holiness or conform our lives to the things of Christ. Punishment has in itself no regenerating capability. Just because you're afraid of God's judgment does not mean that you're going to be regenerated. does not mean that you are within his grace. The fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear, this is John Murray, the fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear which produces adoration and love. This is the second type of fear. It produces adoration and love. It is the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship, and all of these on the highest level of exercise. It is the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. We get some idea of the holiness of God, and we stand in awe, and we honor him, and we adore him, and he is beyond ourselves, and this is the other type of fear that we have 
of the Lord. Turn to Psalm 139. Now we'll get into Psalm 139 in the next couple of weeks. Uh, So we'll just touch on these sections here that deal with, with this understanding of our Heavenly Father. In this type of fear of the Lord, this awe of his holiness, this awe of his, his otherness, uh, of honor and worship, there is an all-pervasive sense of the presence of our Heavenly Father, of his presence. He is omnipresent. That's one of the, uh, the standard uh, qualities and characteristics of the Lord. So Psalm 139, verse 7 Where can I go from thy spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. We see this in other places, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Hebrews, Revelation, this same type of thought, that there is no place we can go that this God is not aware of us, that he is not already there. And the fear of the Lord, this second type of fear, uh, implies our, what do I say, constant attention to and realization that he is always with us. Now, we have a relationship with others. We have a relationship even with with the other things of of, of Satan, the the temptation. You know, there's all these relationships that we have, but our primary relationship is with our Heavenly Father. And that determines every other relationship that we have. For the believer, every relationship that we have flows out of, and, and the quality and character of that relationship is determined by our relationship with him. The first thought of the believer should be, how am I to live in this circumstance according to what Scripture says? How am I to live in this circumstance because of my fear of the Lord, of his holiness, of his otherness, of his qualities? Paul says, having therefore these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Then he says to the Colossians, And ye servants be subject in all things to those who are your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing the Lord. And nothing can be more significant than the fact that we are to live in the fear of the Lord while at the same time we are cared for by the Holy Spirit. See, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit as we Fear the Lord. As we live in this way concerning his awe and his holiness and and, and, and otherness, Acts says, so the church walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit was multiplied. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Psalm 111 verse 10 says, then we should look at an instant in the life of somebody in Scripture where the fear of the Lord is really demonstrated. Now, what we first looked at here are the concepts and how they play out in a big way. Let's look at somebody's life in particular and how the fear of the Lord was manifest. Isaiah chapter 6. So it's not... It's not just fearing the Lord. It's what happens when I fear the Lord. 
what are the qualities and characters of my life and my behavior when I fear the Lord? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, we get some idea of this. And let me give you the background for this so that you have some, some understanding. Isaiah was the prophet of kings, and especially at this point to King Uzziah. Okay, and King Uzziah was a good guy for most of his life. He did what was right before the eyes of the Lord. He uh, defended Jerusalem. He built up the walls. He, he kind of made the people feel safe in a very uh, uh, humanly fashion. Uh, he prospered the nation. He developed commerce. You can see this in, in 2 Chronicles 26. It uh, kind of gives you the life of uh, Uzziah. And, and he did so well. And... That nation prospered to such a degree. What do you think happened to Isaiah or Uzziah? He got prideful. Okay, look what I've done. Look at, look at how safe we are. Look at how blessed that we've been. And so to smash that pride, the Lord struck him with leprosy. Perhaps one of the most terrible things of the Old Testament days, for there was no cure. <coughs> no cure. Now, I don't know about you, but I've met uh, some famous people in my life. How many of you have met somebody famous? Okay. We, we were in Israel, a uh, bunch of ministers, and we're walking through Jerusalem one night, and there over there at the right is a synagogue, and we see this guy sitting out in front of the synagogue, and it's Ted Koppel. Now, this is still when Nightline was, was running, and Ted was doing some segments from Jerusalem. So, you know, at first I wasn't on board, but one guy was hot to trot to meet Ted Koppel. So he says, come on, let's go. So we all went over, the four of us over there, and the four Presbyterian ministers really accosted Ted Koppel in front of the synagogue. And, and he, was, he was very gracious and, and said, um, well, one, guy kept, he was, one guy was overcome, and he kept saying, Mr. Koppel, Mr. Koppel. And, the guy, and he goes, just call me Ted. Okay, just Ted. Now, me and Ted were like that. Uh, so, but he was very gracious, and, and, you know, you meet famous people, and sometimes you get put off, and sometimes you're surprised at how much they're just like you. Well, meeting God is not quite the same, okay? Because God is very much other than we are. Ted had flesh, he had problems just like we did. Yeah, he was on television and known by millions of people, but he's just the same as us. That's not the way it is with God. Let me read Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Now, in the year of King Uzziah's death, that places it as a definite time in history. This is not a vision uh, of some nebulous uh, instance. This is a definite time when this has happened. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The train of his robe signifying his, his holiness and signifying his glory. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, with two... He covered his feet, with two he flew, one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Remember in Hebrew, to emphasize it, you do what? Repeat it. He repeats it three times. Not just the Lord is holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. How much of the earth is full of his glory? The entire earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And what is Isaiah's response to the holiness of the Lord? Woe is me, for I am ruined. Or maybe your translation says, I am undone. Okay, that word in the Hebrew means I am lost. I I perish. Uh, I am annihilated. I am destroyed. Isaiah basically says, I am destroyed by the holiness of the Lord. Strange thought. Destroyed by the holiness. What he's saying there is that I see the holiness of the Lord. And I stand in awe and in fear of him. And it is not until I see the holiness, the revealed holiness of the Lord, that Isaiah discovers that he is what? He is not holy. Okay. Now, this is the prophet Isaiah. The things that come from his mouth are what? Thus saith the Lord. Okay. Everybody in town, everybody in the nation goes, this guy is, is the mouthpiece of God. This guy is right there walking with the Lord. He must be the most holy guy in town. And Isaiah says, I am undone. I have seen the holiness of the Lord, and I have no business in his presence. I have no business in his presence. This is a proper fear of the Lord when we understand this. He says, I am a man of what? Unclean lips. He spoke the word of the Lord, yet he understood. He was a man of unclean lips. He has the cleanest lips in Israel, except in relation to the Lord except when he stands in view of his holiness, for what the whole earth is full of God's glory. The train of his robe fills the temple, but he is undone by the holiness of our Heavenly Father. He comes there and he finds out how pure God is and how impure he was. So maybe that's something that you have felt at some point. Or you have come in, in your struggles, in your joys, maybe in your daily devotions, in your walk with the Lord, and you, you have had some glimpse of really the holiness of the Lord, and you stand in fear of him, and, and you've been shaken to your core, and you look at that and go, I, I, how, can, how can I, I can't measure up to this. And of course you can't. That's why Christ has come. That's why Christ has come. All of this for Isaiah as he realizes he is unholy. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Remember, he didn't go to get the coal. He didn't do it himself. The Lord sent that to him. I has not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those whom he loves. This is God's mercy to us. So we have in this passage awe and adoration and fear, which really the the majesty and holiness of God should elicit from every believer. And failure to grasp this understanding really is perhaps symptomatic of our culture today. 
and even within the culture of the church. We've kind of discarded that otherness of God. We've kind of reached up and made him a little bit more like we are and a little bit less like he is in Scripture. It's an attitude of the heart. When was the last time you called somebody a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman? Just think about that. As I asked myself this question, I couldn't remember when the last time, or last time anybody called me that. I mean, who do we call saints? You, you gotta, yeah, you've got to be over 80 before you get called a saint. Okay, how are the rest of us living if we don't get called saints? Okay, we're, we're in big trouble. Okay, we, we used to say that they were God-fearing people. Okay, because we understood it was important to fear the Lord. Not only his judgments, but this, this holiness and to stand in awe of him and, and to hold him up as, as really something so different than us. Biblical faith means to fear the Lord because he is glorious in his holiness, fearful in his praises, and he does wondrous things. Exodus chapter 15. His name is glorious and fearful, Deuteronomy 28. So if we know God, we must know him in this glory, in this matchlessness, that that he is other and we are not like him, yet he reaches out to us and says those who fear him can begin to understand. Those who fear him, who understand who he is, who live in that way, they can know redemption, they can know the wisdom of the Lord, they can know the freedom from the things that bind us in this world. This is the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the works of your hands are truth and justice. All of your teachings are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and righteousness. You have sent us redemption. We did not do it ourselves. You have given us a covenant in the blood and person of your son, Jesus the Christ. Holy and awesome is your name. And you tell us that the fear of you is the beginning of wisdom. It is the chief part and it is the start. Lord, as believers, we're aware that our redemption that you have provided has removed that, that threat of final judgment. For our salvation is secure in the things of Christ. But we do stand in fear of that, for we have friends and family who do not understand it, whose lives will still be judged according to that. But you call us to a new way of living, of fear of you, of standing in awe of your holiness and your glory and your strength, understanding that there's no place that we can go from your presence Understanding that you know every thought that we have. Understanding that you know every word that we are about to speak. Every action that we are about to take. There's nothing that we can hide from you. For you are awesome and holy. This is the right fear of you. That we might begin to know. And begin to live these things out. 
Lord, if there are those here today that are wrestling with these things, perhaps judgment has come and a fear in their hearts today because they do not know Christ. Open their eyes to the salvation that Jesus brings, that they may turn from their sin, confess and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And for those of us who are believers, Lord, that we may walk and live and act in fear of you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.